Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Hall of Famer and former world number one tennis player, Andy Roddick. Now, you may remember him from his big personality on the courts or from winning the 2003 U.S. Open or when he hosted Saturday Night Live. But these days, he's doing all kinds of other fun stuff. He's the CEO of the Andy Roddick Foundation, which supports kids in low-income communities. He's co-founded two companies, one in healthcare and another in commercial real estate. And if that wasn't enough, he's also launched Sweetens Co. Spirits and is out there making Tennessee bourbon. Can you imagine just pivoting from what you've known your whole life and jumping in headfirst into one new situation after the other? Well, Andy knows what it's like to feel out of place and uncomfortable doing something new. He asks lots of questions, he prepares diligently, and he knows how to develop the right relationships. Now look, every leader finds themselves in new situations where we don't know the lay of the land. This conversation will show you exactly how to navigate it. The leadership lesson for today is, don't be afraid to ask questions. Here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Andy Roddick. Andy, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, I'm very happy. I'm a, a listener uh, of the podcast, so I'm a little intimidated to be on. I'm happy to be on. And uh, I, 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 it's even more intimidating talking to uh, a guy from Louisville about a, a Tennessee bourbon that you mentioned earlier. So I'll, I'll, I'll be humble, I promise. I, I, w- <laughs> I wanted to start with that. You know, you've launched this Sweden's Cove Spirits, uh, a Tennessee bourbon. You know, tell us the story behind the brand and, and, you know, what in the world makes you think you could compete with the Kentucky bourbon? I think I'm just dumb enough to have tried it. Um, you know, I, it was, uh, there's a, there's a nine hole golf course, uh, outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, called Sweetens Cove, um, which is just a ph- phenomenal, uh, addition to, uh, to the world of golf. It's, uh, you know, there's no frills, there's no dress code. You come, you can experience world-class golf course architecture for, uh, a pretty uh, affordable price. And we kind of stumbled upon this, uh, a business partner of mine named Mark Rivers, and he kept going back to this nine hole golf course. And I said, is that, is that what we're going to do? We want to be in the nine hole golf business. Is that, is that where he goes? No, I think there's a play past it. There was this tradition on the first tee where in a show of fellowship, someone would have a, a sip of whiskey or bourbon or whiskey bourbon and, and they would leave the bottle behind. And so then the next person would do it. Obviously this is probably before COVID, but um but uh, <laughs> but anyways, at the end of the day, there would be these bottles and you'd mix it up and you would kind of finish around at the end of the day. You would share uh, you would share whiskeys, bourbons. And then uh, after about a summer of that and drinking all sorts of nasty, hot bourbon, I said, are we, we are we dumb enough to actually try our own? And uh, turns out we were. Um, we brought in a, a, an unbelievable uh, distiller. I, I call her a scientist, uh, Marianne Eves. Uh, who blends our product? Uh, a guy uh, you you probably know, uh, Peyton Manning uh, came on board as well. So it's been uh, it's been a pretty fun process, and you know we're we're still a kind of a gritty startup, but uh, but we've had some fun. Well, good luck with it. Sounds great. You know, Peyton sent me an email asking for some some shout outs <laughs> for your your uh, uh, bourbon, and I will definitely do that in Kentucky. You know, 
You know, uh, Andy, I always like to kind of go back to the beginning. Uh, could you tell us uh, about your upbringing and maybe a story about your childhood that, that really influenced the, the type of leader you are today? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure. My, my, uh, my dad uh, was a, a farmer from Wisconsin. Um, you know, he was, uh, his father passed, so he was running his own, own farm uh, outside of Platteville, Wisconsin. It was a suburb of Platteville, and Platteville is about 2,000 people. So he was out kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, but very, very driven, uh, hard worker, moved around in the service, um, ended up uh, having, uh, it wasn't an original idea, but was attracted to this idea of a fast oil change. And so, uh, you know, he, he ended up uh, owning some Jiffy Lube properties. And that's what took us to Austin, Texas. Um, but, he, you know, he was, uh, he, he was a hard worker. You know, he, he said, listen, you don't have to do everything we say, but if you do choose to do it, do it, do it well and kind of uh, commit to it. Um, there was a lot of thought around ha- playing an individual sport as as well as a team sport. And uh, I know everyone likes to specialize early, but I think there was a conscious effort in our in our household not to actually commit too early to to one or the other um, because my parents thought they actually taught different lessons. Um, you know, in you know the individual uh, athletics, you know, like tennis is more self reliance and. Uh, the others or how to be a good teammate, how to be a decent human and, and, and kind of uh, not make it all about yourself. So um, luckily my parents were, were thoughtful about that. You know, you came up obviously fast track as a junior tennis player. You know, what advice do you give parents uh, raising kids in sports that, that have potential like you obviously did? Yeah. The, the question I get the most in this, this uh, it doesn't matter what the potential is. Um, you, you know, you don't have to kind of have pro aspirations, but I get the question from parents and it bothers me. I always get, how long should my, my, my child be playing every day? And I said, as long as they are engaged, committed, and happy. Um, you know, I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all, uh, you know, calculation. And I, I'd say probably quality over, over quantity. And I, I see that mistake made over and over, which, especially in an individual sport, uh, might lead to burnout a little bit faster. You know, Andy, I want to hone in more on how you think about leadership. But first... It's U.S. Open time, and uh, you won this Grand Slam event in 2003. Tell us something about the U.S. Open that you'd only know by being a past champion. Oh, gosh. Um, I, guess that, I guess that feeling. I mean, my, my relationship with the U.S. Open is, uh, has been a long one. I know my, my mom you know, bribed me one year with my grades where she said, if you did well enough, we, we're going to go to the U.S. Open. And that was in 1991 which was also the year that uh, a guy named Jimmy Connors made that epic run to the semifinals and basically turned, uh, you know, it wasn't Arthur Ashe Stadium then, but uh, what is what used to be became Louis Armstrong, turned that into a little bit of a rock show. And so as a nine-year-old, I was inspired. I'm like, this guy can control the entire mood of a crowd by playing well and emoting a little bit. And it, it, it absolutely blew my mind, created a love affair and, you know, from from those days of being like the last person into the stadium and being way high up, uh, you know, 12 years later, it happened for me. And it was, uh, I, I, I promise you, I didn't take it for granted. You know, when you won the U.S. Open, I, I know you had to be euphoric. You just mentioned that it was an incredible experience. But some people, you know, when you get to the top like that, and you became number one. They actually get down the dumps a little bit later, you know, get a little depressed. How about you? Did it have any impact like that on you or you just keep on the high? Well, the only thing that made me depressed was that a guy named Federer came along. Um, <laughs> no, I, I didn't really I didn't really get down in the dumps too much. Um, you know, there, there was a, a certain level of pressure that I was already used to because um, 
at the very beginning of my career, I, I, there was a there there were a couple of long shadows um, that made it virtually impossible as far as expectation. You know, Andre, Pete, the tail end of uh, Connor's back. We, we had kind of such an, a, a sense of entitlement in, in a great way because I kind of grew up during this uh, you know fan entitlement phase. But at, at that point, I guess I was kind of already used to expectation a, a, a little bit. Um, you know, so my stress points, uh, came from trying to problem solve against guys that, uh, that were just better than me as opposed to from, uh, from any outside influence. <laughs> well, speaking of that, and you're, you're obviously a hall of famer yourself, but you've beaten each of the players that would be on what some would say would be the, uh, Mount Rushmore of tennis, you know, Roger Federer, uh, Nadal, uh, Djokovic, you, you've beaten all these guys. What single biggest thing? Did you learn about what it takes to be a leader from each one of these guys? They do it in a different way. Um, you know, Roger is, uh, it's almost like he's the leader as far as an ambassadorship. And that doesn't get bestowed upon you until you actually have the results also. But an absolute gentleman, um, he, he's the only guy that I've seen who is considered amongst the greatest uh, in his sport that doesn't have that like burning intensity, right? You watch the Jordan documentary back. And it's, uh, it, you know, he punches a teammate during practice and he's just got this like beast inside of him that he can't control, but he's able to kind of control it and it manifests itself in greatness. Roger, you know, I asked him about this one time when I was on your side of the microphone. He goes, I don't know. He goes, and this is something that blew my mind and it's why I'm not as good. Well, there are many reasons why I'm not as good at him, but this is one of them. I said, you know, you don't have that thing, that that intensity that, you know, that, that we see in Kobe, that we see in Tiger, that we that we saw, you know, see in Jordan. And he goes, I don't know. I, I hear these guys always talk about the fact that, you know, I hate losing. I hate losing. I hate losing. He goes, I don't like losing, but I like winning way more than I hate losing. And I was like, that's so simple and annoying um, because it's <laughs> because you're actually able to execute on that thought. It sounds great, but I wasn't able to execute on that thought. <laughs> what about Nadal? Uh, the, one of the most humble guys um, you'll ever meet um, goes about his business. So it doesn't matter that he's won 1,200 Sl uh, matches and 13 French Opens. He goes, he literally goes into the first round of the French Open going, I could lose today. And he has that kind of like, doesn't matter what you did yesterday. Today's a different story. And he said it for a long time and I didn't really believe him. And I think I do now. Um, you know, I actually think he respects the process. He respects his opponents. He knows he's still playing against the best in the world. And on an off day, you know, he, he has this kind of like admirable insecurity about himself. And I don't. I think that's the right way to put it. Um, that 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 kind of makes any. Like for me, I'm going. Gosh, I, I won one slam and was number one for a cup of coffee. You know, why should I have an ego about anything when this guy kind of takes his lunch pail <laughs> and his hard hat to work every single day? So I, I thought that was uh, very admirable, and you know, it, it hasn't changed over time. How about Djokovic? He has this unbelievable ability to kind of, uh, you know, I I I think there's a. Uh, a divide, you know, he, he doesn't like the fact that Roger and Rafa get all the adoration and the fan support and kind of, instead of wincing it, I think he uses it as motivation. He's able to kind of turn the tables on certain narratives. And, you know, early on in this career, I was guilty of saying, you know what, if you get this guy into a tough match, you know, he retired against me one time in Australia because of the heat and kind of had the reputation for, for pulling the ripcord a little bit early. And I never would have bet in my entire life that he would be one of the guys that you look at. And, you know, earlier this year, he took Rafa's legs out from him at Roland Garros, at his home court. 
and he's become the guy, the guy that comes back from two sets to love down later in that French Open and, and plays six-hour matches and is able to recover. He really took that point of criticism, which I still think is accurate, and turned it on its head, changed his diet, changed everything about it. He's able to kind of take these little points of criticism, which I actually do believe he's sensitive about, but then turn them into strengths. And I, I, I wouldn't have bet um, you know, that he would have had this career. And it, it's, it's hard to actually make a statistical argument against him being the greatest now uh, with the numbers that he's putting up. You know, a lot of the people that make an argument for Roger and Rafa, as it stands currently, it's, it's not finished. You know, they're all, they're all still playing. But it's because, oh, I like their style better. I'm like, well, that's a preference. That, that, doesn't, that, that, that doesn't equate to numbers. And so <laughs> Novak has, has yeah. gone far, far above anything I thought was possible. He's, yeah. he's amazing to watch. Well, who do you think is going to win this year's, uh, this year's Open? Who's your pick? I don't know that I would pick against Novak on any court in any situation right now. Um, you know, as, as proven by that match against, you get through Rafa uh, at his home court and then take care of business to win the French Open. Um, to complete the uh, career slam, and he's now done it twice, uh, right. which um, which Rafa and Roger haven't done. So I think he's my favorite against any human on the planet, anytime, anywhere, right now. You know, after Pete Sampras retired, you, you carried the the torch for U.S. tennis for a long time, and 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 you said that America's men's tennis was your biggest responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, explain. You know. Well, I, I had a you know I was a fan way before I was a player of any note, and you know I, I thought it. You know, I knew that it probably wasn't possible uh, based on my ability and based on the track record of the guys that came before me. Uh, I knew it probably wasn't possible to live up to those expectations, but it, it was my responsibility to keep, you know, American tennis fans engaged. Um, I knew that I could I could sell out a session. You know, if we're in Indianapolis, I needed to do everything possible to make sure that we had, you know, butts in the stands, that they had a good time, take care of my responsibilities afterwards. So what, what, I, what I couldn't match um, with talent and ability of the, the guys that came before me in U.S. tennis, I knew I had to try to make up for it in other ways. And um, I was aware of that. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's probably what I was referring to as far as uh, a responsibility. You retired literally on your 30th birthday. And uh, believe it or not, I, I used to be a huge tennis fan, loved to play myself uh, before I turned to golf. It, you know, but... Like the rest of the tennis world, you know, I was shocked. I said, how could you be doing this to us, man? We'd love rooting for you. Why so early? Um, the answer is I don't know. Um, I, uh, I literally, the, the day that I retired, I think I held a press conference around four or five in the evening. I decided that morning. Um, and that was, I just won my first round of the U.S. Open uh, the day before. And I woke up and I was just, I, was, I had a lot of questions. My arm was hurting you know, why are you doing this? Um, do you still believe, and this is probably the biggest one, do you still believe with the state of your shoulder health, how unbelievable everyone else is? Do you still believe you can get through these three guys, best of five, uh, over the course of two weeks? And I think if I was honest with myself, I, I, I'm not sure if I believe that. So uh, I, I didn't want to risk it feeling like work for the first time in my life. Um, and uh, I had other things that that I was certainly interested in. Um, I was a pretty selfish person when I was playing, and I, I kind of had to be. Um, but I think I wanted to be a better husband. I think, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to uh, spend more time on the foundation. There were, uh, you know, certainly business interests that I was already involved in and um, other things that I, that I was certainly interested in. So I think it was uh, all of those things. Um, but uh, I, I decided in a course of about two hours with conversation with about five people, uh, that morning and then uh, retired that afternoon. 
Well, so let's let's shift gears and let's talk about what you're doing in some of your other venues today. You, you, tell us about the Andy Roddick Foundation and, and and why and and when you started it. I started a version of it. Um, I actually uh, one of my idols. You know, the coolest thing is when uh, your idols uh, live up to the expectations that you have for them, and that was the case with uh, with Andre Agassi. Um, I used to kind of bum around with him, and if he needed someone to play, you know, if he had a date to play an exhibition in Houston and needed someone to beat up on. He would fly me in when I was 17 years old. And, uh, but the best part about that for me wasn't getting beat up on, but it was the travel time in between. Right. So if we had to go from Houston to Louisiana that night, I had, you know, an hour with Andre where I could kind of drill down and, and ask uh, all the questions. And, uh, one time we were on that, uh, we were on a plane and I asked him what his biggest regret was. And, and that's a loaded question with Andre because he's, he's been very upfront about, uh, you know, his struggles throughout his career. And his, his book is probably one of the best, most honest accounting of, uh, you know, kind of an iconic athlete that I've, that I've ever read. Um, but he said he didn't start his foundation early enough, and that was good enough for me. So we did our, our first event in a, in a parking lot uh, with a net in it. And I think we raised a couple thousand bucks, and that felt good. Um, and now uh, fast forward to uh, the, the current version of it where, um, we serve close to 80,000 kids a year uh, through our direct service programs and our, our LAT network, um, which would be, I, I guess, in business, it would, you, you would have acquired, you know, 29 other different properties that focus in the out-of-school time space. So we are, we are a, a leader in Central Texas, and, you know, we, we were named the best out-of-school time program in the country a couple years ago, um, just in time to have to shift gears <laughs> with not being able to be with our kids in person. So it's been, um, it, it's been amazing. There have been many, many, many people who have given uh, their time and efforts to let us fundraise because the a belief uh, in, in an idea. And uh, it's been, uh, it's probably been the best part of, uh, of, of my life so far. Well, good for you. I think that's fantastic. You know, and we talked about uh, Sweden's Cove. Uh, tell us about your other business interests and the, the process that you've used to decide what you're going to focus on. Yeah. So it, the basis for all of it was uh, our, I have a commercial real estate business that I started in, in 2008. Um, basically the, the world was turned upside down. Um, I, I was lucky enough to be sitting on, uh, some liquidity from my tennis career. Um, and everyone was kind of anxious for, uh, for liquid cash. There were deals to be had. So we basically just bought what we thought were quality buildings, uh, started off, started off mostly in bank buildings and have since kind of pivoted to, you know, Starbucks, Lowe's, Home Depot's, um, you know, in, in, in 12 different states and it's the most boring business. It would bore you to tears, David. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, so you buy quality buildings, you sign long-term leases, uh, you know, cap rates of five to 7%, you can borrow up against 2%, you play the middle and, uh, hope that your buildings go up over time. So that, that's probably the, the basis for everything. And then I've, uh, you know, luckily as, uh, as I've met, um, smart people throughout the years, I've gotten to learn about, you know, different things. So on the angel side, um, I, I've been pretty, pretty aggressive, um, since, since, since I retired and, uh, you know, lucky enough to have a couple of hits, but, um, you know, I, I kind of always follow the, the motto, my, uh, my dad from, uh, his farm outside of Platteville, he said, uh, if you surround yourself with smart people and ask a lot of questions, you'll, you'll be all right. Well, speaking of asking a lot of questions, you know, you, you moved from tennis, you get into business, you know. Did have you ever had any anxiety or 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 just issues yourself in terms of really dealing with, you know, having the courage to ask the questions that you need to ask to get to business? No, I I, I certain I certainly feel like I I live through imposter syndrome daily, um, you know. So, um, <laughs> but I, I think you know you know what I, I think humans inherently have 
this built-in thing where they they want to help as long as it's presented the right way and they know that someone's being earnest. Um, I, I can tell you, I, you know, you, you gauge the room. You don't, you know, fire off questions within 10 seconds of meeting someone. But if, if the relationship is, 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 is there, um, I think people appreciate it. And, and, and I guarantee you every person that I've asked a question to had someone uh, give them advice, had mentorship uh, on, on their way as well. So, um, I, I, yeah, I think at first, and I think that's a big, big value for people that, um, you know, aren't necessarily trained or from the business world is, is, is always asking if there's something you don't understand. Um, you know, if someone's speaking a different language because they're really good at whatever they do and they, they speak in kind of slang terms, don't be scared to just say, stop. What does that mean? You know, you can, you can ask once and look dumb or you can kind of be dumb every time it's said from there on out. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> you know, what, what you learn, Andy, playing tennis at such a high level that you're bringing to the business world? <laughs> that I shouldn't have the same temperament. <laughs> <laughs> you did break a racket every now and then, yeah, you know? a, little, a, a, a little, a little too often. Um, I, I don't think there's there's a substitute for actually putting in the time. Um, you know, you you couldn't lie to the tennis ball; it knew whether or not you'd been putting in the hours. And I think, uh, conversely, if I'm going into a meeting and I'm unprepared, I think that's very obvious. Um, so I, I think preparation is key, no matter what uh, kind of what uh, world you're you're in, um, and, and preparation is largely a choice also. So um, I, I was certainly aware of that in, in tennis. So uh, I always have this thing whenever I'm talking to young tennis players, but I think it applies to business. There's, there's going to be things that are out of your control, but if you get 100% of the decisions right that are well within your control, you'll be fine. You know, a lot of leaders go through struggles of whether they have what it takes to perform at the highest levels. Did, did you ever wonder about that in tennis, which you were obviously great at? I mean, did you ever have any issues you know, working through that? Oh, sure. I, I had, a, you know, my, my biggest point of uh, jealousy with, you know, someone like a, a, a Sampras who I used to watch and was a hitting partner for him on Davis Cup team or, or Roger was I had to, I felt this, I had this insecurity where I felt like I had to, on a back court, you know, tucked away at a venue somewhere practicing the day before the tournament started. I, I felt like I had to play well all the time. In order, you know, I, I couldn't play terribly on, on a Sunday leading into a tournament and then just know that I was going to play well on Monday. Sometimes it happened, but uh, I, I didn't have that kind of gift of, uh, of, of, of confidence. Um, you know, then I'd, I'd finish like a two-hour grind session where I'm beating myself up. And that's probably why I retired at 30 also and Roger's still going. But then I would kind of walk past Roger and, you know, he's losing 6-2 to some guy ranked 500 in the world, all the while knowing he was going to be just fine on Monday. So it wasn't the Wimbledon finals. It wasn't, you know, the other tournaments, the lopsided nature of, uh, of, of our professional relationship. It was how easy it was for him day to day, just knowing that it was going to be there when he needed it. You know, Andy, one of my mentors was the, was the late John Weinberg, who, who headed Goldman Sachs. And he said that with success, you either grow or you swell. And you became number one in tennis at the age of 20. And, and, and even now, okay, I mean, uh, you're an unbelievable business person, starting new, new brands, you know, you're married to a supermodel, you know, you got two beautiful kids, you know, how is success really affecting you? And do you ever have to kick yourself in the ass to not get a little bit too cocky? No, if, if you're, if you're cocky enough, that just means you're not, uh, you know, surrounding yourself with the right people. I don't think, I don't, I don't think you need people nodding their heads on with whatever you say. 
Um, and I, I, I probably don't need to tell you, uh, our, our children are five and three. So if I'm ever feeling, uh, you know, a little too proud, um, you know, I, I, I look down and realize I get dominated by something that's two feet tall. So, so, so um, you know, and also like anything, any, any, any success that I've had, there's, there's a million people out there that have, uh, have, have, have done more with less opportunity. So, you know, it, it's always, I think being, uh, being proud is fine. I think being aware is, is important also. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and you were top 10 in tennis, nine straight years, you know, what do you think? as you look back at that and, and what you're trying to do today, what do you think is the key to sustained success for, for that kind of leadership? Um, you know, in my mind, I think that my best quality as a tennis player was getting up off the mat the next day, right? If, if I took it on the chin, you know, that, that, that sucks, you know, and I, and, and I, yeah, I kind of failed famously on, uh, on, on some big stages, but um I'll be damned if I wasn't going to be out there two days later getting in my reps again. Um, you know, maybe, maybe that wasn't healthy. Maybe, maybe the process should have taken a little longer, but um, I, I do think there was something to having pride in getting back to work. Um, I, I was, I was pretty good at that. That that's probably largely where the, uh, the top 10 stat uh, came from. You know, common wisdom today is that leaders should play to your strengths. How do you think about managing strengths and weaknesses? Uh, that's, a, that's such a good question. Um, and, and, and I don't know. I think I think what you know is important. I think what you don't know uh, is probably more important. Um, I, I've Unfortunately, I've seen a lot of people who have had success in, in a phase of their life and they, they, they maybe feel as if because of that, they can be experts at anything without uh, actually putting the time in to, to learn and kind of go back to the drawing board and, and, uh, and, and be humble again. Um, you know, so I, 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 in my tennis career, I knew my serve was going to be there. I knew I didn't have to spend as much time on it. I knew it's like the one control mechanism that I knew if I put time in and kept my shoulder healthy, it was going to be there. So uh, in tennis, I had to fill, fill the holes a little bit more. I had to work on movement. My backhand was, I, I still can't hit a toss my backhand. So, um, you know, so, so I knew that I had to plug those gaps and I was able to maybe take less, uh, attention away from my serve, but in, in business, I think it's the other way. Um, you know, I, I think they're definitive strengths, but, uh, you know, I, I need to, to reach out and leverage contacts and ask questions. Um, when, when I don't know, I, I, I actually think, uh, you know, I, at a certain point, I, I, I probably play to my strengths a little bit more and spend more time on them. We all face competition. How do you go about preparing to take on the best of the best, which you you did many, many times? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I'd love to come up with some huge answer here. Um, it, it's it, For me, it was just a matter of being consistent with the work. You know, a lot of people will, uh, I saw a million players, they say, oh, I've, I've, been, I've been working so hard for two months. And then they lose first round. They'd be like, see, I told you that hard work's nothing. I'm like, you always have to be ready, even if the moment's not ready for you. And a lot of times it wasn't ready for me, but sometimes it was. Um, and so it was less about like kind of building towards one thing or kind of over overvaluing one result one way or the other and, and really being consistent and being ready, uh, you know, for the moment. When did you realize, Andy, that, that Federer was superhuman? Uh, early. Um, <laughs> uh, very, very, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't really much of a secret. You know, I, I've never seen someone who's kind of won two or three slams be viewed the way that he was that, that early. Um, I remember there was a, 
I, there was a, a it wasn't called a sports century thing that I did. And I remember Cliff Drysdale commented on it and he, it was, I think Roger had won two slams at that point. And he goes, Roger Federer, he goes, he might be the best I've ever seen. And that, you don't really say that about someone who's won two slams or two majors. And so uh, I, I think it was pretty apparent very early that uh, he was, he was a little bit of different gravy. Andy, you were well known for saving countless match points, and you even played the, the the longest match in history, 77 games versus Federer at Wimbledon. Uh, were you born with this mental toughness, or did you actually work on it? No, I think it was just trying to get through one point, uh, try not to vomit before the next one, and then just be on with it. And I just repeated that for about 13 or 14 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you not vomit, though? I mean, seriously, you, 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 how do you not vomit? What did you do? Did you have anything that you did that you that made you tough? Yeah. Uh, so again, I I, I can't uh, give enough credit to preparation, but uh, actually being in the moment, I was um I was I was big into rituals. So I used to get made fun of in the locker room because I'd always go to the towel. I would do the thing. I'd, I I kind of would repeat the same process. And for me, it was a it was a nice reset. You know, you do something great crowd goes crazy maybe you react and then there's that moment of like reset okay back in the moment and i think kind of having that reset button whether it's you know in business and you have some ritual to kind of take it down a notch or reset to go back up i I think that's actually super super important um you know i I think there's value in 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 letting the mind play tricks on itself sometimes now you you had a number of tennis coaches in your career looking back who, who do you think was the best and why Gosh, there's, they were I, okay. One, I'll say, like I was lucky enough to, uh, to 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 kind of pick the brains of some absolute uh, legends. Uh, uh, Brad Gilbert was uh, w- was amazing um, from a tactical standpoint. Um, the way he saw the game and the way he was able to kind of analyze in very kind of basic terms uh, made everything very simple. And when I was young, I probably needed that uh, a little bit. Uh, obviously, Jimmy Connors. Um, was my coach for a couple of years. And, you know, Jimmy could tell me the same things as other people, but like it's Jimmy Connors. And when he looks at you and says something, you feel like your soul is glowing, right? Like you feel like, <laughs> like it's just, it's just, it's just heavier. And, you know, to be able to work on footwork and what I needed in, at that point in my life and improve uh, a, a backhand and how he was kind of motivated again. And uh, we actually did a, a, a podcast last year and I, I, I I said, I got a lot of joy out of bringing you back to the game um, and having you kind of compete in a different way. And, uh, you know, he kind of said, uh, you know, similar. So that that, that made me very happy. Um, Larry Stefanke was amazing. He's, you know, probably the most, uh, you know, under the radar coach. He's coached four number one players, um, you know, and he was what he was amazing at was a lot of guys, uh, a lot of coaches coach a certain way or a certain type of player. Uh, you know, someone used to come to the net a bunch, so they like, you know, Sampras and Roger and the people with certain tool set. You know, Larry has coached, you know, a five foot nine Chilean guy who got to the number one, who's a lefty who stays back, and Marcelo Rios, uh, Johnny Mack, who's obviously uh, insane, uh, me, who's not much better, uh, Fernando Gonzalez, uh, another Chilean, but a big husky guy, you know, so uh, Yevgeny Kafelnikov, a crazy Russian. Um, you know, so he, he has an unbelievable ability to see uh, kind of strategy through your eyes as opposed to what makes him comfortable. And I think that that takes a special kind of talent to kind of get out 
outside of themselves if that means being more effective as a as a coach. Now you coach people now. What's a one-on-one coaching session like with you? Oh gosh, I don't I don't really coach at all. Um I I have some players that come through and I I think it's less to do with with technique or anything else. I think uh you'll see a lot of young players when they're making that jump from juniors or you know, I I guess in in golf what would be, you know, the 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 web tour into kind of the pro tour. Uh I, I think there's an you know, an unnecessary thing where you hyper analyze everything, right? Like, oh gosh, these guys are so great. I'm like, no, you, you're ser- you're serving 128 too. You can run as fast as they can. You're in your own head. You're trying to play too well. Let's calm it down and let's simplify. Let's 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 get three great things out of this session. So, I think the ability to kind of have someone who who may have played at a certain level, just kind of calm everything down, take it simple, do the work, do your stretching, put good things into your body. Make sure you get your sleep. Let's take it down to a base level. Um, if I if I have a a kid or an aspiring pro for two or three days, I think just kind of those mechanisms that maybe they can take forward, where they're not just hyping out about everything, is is probably uh, how I can be beneficial in kind of a short sample size. Your your life has obviously been incredible. It, you know, you literally became a pop icon. Uh, you appeared on Letterman, Leno, Ellen shows. You know. How would you describe the the Andy Roddick brand, and how how are you evolving? I, I don't try to evolve it. Um, it. It's weird because that was that was all pretty front loaded, and um, we talked about my responsibility to the game of tennis. But also, I, I knew I had to do a lot of that stuff because you know contracts expire at a certain place. So the first five or six years of my career, I was pretty ambitious with with you know and pretty calculated with what I wanted to do, and uh, now it's kind of next to nothing. Um, you know, I, I do a little bit of tennis channel from, from our house, but, um, a lot of the stuff I do now isn't, isn't really, isn't real front facing because it, it doesn't have to be. Um, if there's a way to add value, uh, you know, by kind of getting out in front of things, then I certainly am, am happy to do that, but it's, it's certainly not something I, I seek out daily. How did you think about endorsements and, and who you hooked up with? Um, yeah, a, a lot of it was, uh, you know, obviously there's a, there's a, a big financial element of it, but you, you I, I wasn't real good at, at, uh, selling a product that I didn't really believe in. I never really had. And, uh, you know, I, if I wanted to be able to use it, if I was going to, uh, in, endorse it, I wanted to be a fan of it. I wanted to, you know, I, I think people can, can sometimes tell if, if, if people are genuine or not. I felt like I was, you know, genuine for better or worse. A lot of times it was worse, uh, in, in press and stuff, but, um, I wanted, a, obviously, a good partner. Uh, I wanted to be very, very clear uh, about my responsibilities and answer honestly if I thought that I could do them without interfering with uh, with uh, with tennis um, and, and kind of that that sort of focus because it all falls apart if you don't kind of keep that that block in place. And then uh, if I was actually a fan and, and a user uh, of the product or, or could be. Great. You know, you, you developed a, a lot of wealth at an early age and, and- – and you're known for managing your money well, investing your wealth in a, in, a, in a real strong fashion. What advice do you offer others on this front? Start early. And the, the biggest thing I hear when I'm, when I'm talking to now, my, my friends have gotten a little bit older, but it's like, well, it's easy for you because you, 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 know, you, you were lucky enough to have it. I said, that's fine. But like on a prorated version, if I'm investing 2%, it's, it's kind of there, there's still a drawdown. There's still a number that you need to be uh, strategic with monthly. It's not just like on a whim, I'm going to invest in this. Like it needs to be consistent. Uh, and, and disciplined over time. I, I was lucky enough to uh, uh, be taught that by, by my business mentor very, very early. But 
Um, the thought that I can't do it just because I don't have, the, the, there's a prorated version and it's, it's, you know, of, of what you can do. And, and uh, starting early is, 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 is one of the biggest factors. And it's, it's, it's certainly uh, changed a lot for me. You know, Andy, you're, you're known for having a wicked sense of humor. And, and you even told Letterman that your booming serve was, was uh, your go-to, just like his top 10 Letterman <laughs> <laughs> list. I love that top 10 list. And I loved watching some of the stuff that you did on YouTube. It's great. You know, how do you, how do you think about your humor? I, I, I don't, I don't, um, you know, I, I think, it's, it's, it's funny. I think, uh, in a lot of, I got, I actually got asked about this, uh, when I, I, I worked at Fox sports for a couple of years, um, when they started their Fox sports one network and, uh, we had this round table and it's like, well, you know, you were so outspoken, you know, and a, a lot of the, they were basically the, the top of the conversation was do athletes ever really tell us anything? They have to be protected. I said, yeah, but that's not fair because like, if I said something and it was, you know, polarizing or funny or not funny, or someone wanted to get mad at me about it, I actually only had to uh, account for me. Whereas you get someone who's the leader of, uh, of an actual team. You know, let's take someone who's been on your podcast. Tom Brady says something, 70 guys in his locker room have to answer for what he said. And that would mortify me. So I think I had the ability to be outspoken because I kind of had ownership over what the, uh, what, what the scar tissue would be from, from whatever I said. And I, frankly, I, I think a lot of times people mistook, uh, made the mistake of taking honesty as, as humor. You know, I was, I was kind of just trying to answer straight in a straightforward fashion. <laughs> yeah, you did. You know, what, what could any leader learn from hosting Saturday Night Live like you did? Oh, gosh. Uh, when you suck at the rehearsal right before the actual show, go to the corner store and get a couple of beers and then go do your monologue. Um, <laughs> uh more truth <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and that that's absolutely what happened um i don't know i think there's i think there's value in, in putting yourself in uncomfortable positions um you know going there and having the writers in that room and and you know seeing the talent and and not trying to kind of control it too much but putting yourself out there listen i i i do well i i, I do horribly i think there's value that you can pull from from that experience and uh i, I was certainly never never uh, scared to kind of get outside my comfort zone, but that, that SNL is intimidating. I'll tell you that. It, that is, that's uh, it's, it's a pretty scary thing. Yeah. You're definitely out of your comfort <laughs> yes. zone for sure on that one. You know, you, you know, obviously today with everything that's going on, Andy, every leader's focused on diversity and social justice. How do you think about it? And how do you think tennis has created social change over the years? Well, you know, listen, I, I think if there was there were icons as far as uh, what would be a Mount Rushmore um, from from sports, you know, we would have a lot of the players in that conversation from, you know, Billie Jean King and, and, and what she did for for a quality of of uh, the economy and in, in, in the tennis economy. And, you know, uh, Arthur Ashe uh, and, and what he stood for and someone that doesn't get talked about enough for her decision-making in the eighties was Martina Navratilova, which, it, you know, at that time to one defect from, uh, from Czech and then to, to come out before it was, it was even uh, a common narrative um, was unbelievably brave. And she doesn't get talked about enough, but then you, you pay it forward to what Andre ha has done. You look at what Roger has done with being a, you know, a lead UNICEF ambassador for a long time and then building his own schools and, the the I, I always say that I was very lucky to get caught in the uh, in the right vacuum. You know, tennis has always stood for it. Um, 
I, I feel like they've been been leaders uh, in sports for equality. So uh, I, I feel I feel lucky to to come from that universe. You know, Andy, you chose not to defend your Dubai title, and it was it was two million dollars in prize money. Uh, you said you're not going to play. Tell us why. Well, there, there was there was conflict at the time. Um, you know, it's, with uh, with Israel, and there was a a female player named Shahar Pier who uh, wasn't allowed to go compete, and I, I just thought that was pretty unfair. I think I think sports should be something that's that's unifying. I think there's there's value in um, you know, I was friends from with people from all across the world, um, differing views on a lot of topics, but there's still ability to find common ground. Um, and and I, I kind of felt strongly about that. I didn't feel good about going there and and, and benefiting from uh, a tournament that was making a decision that I, I largely uh, disagreed with. You know, I, I didn't know Shahar at the time. It's not as if I was, you know, backing up um, a friend of mine. Um, it, it just seemed like it was the right thing to do. And um, I, frankly, it, the, the attention I got was, was a little embarrassing. I don't think that's why I did it either. That was before, uh, Twitter where you could kind of, uh, you know, grandstand with the, uh, the, the, the press of a button. Um, yeah. you know, so, um, it, I, I don't know. I just, I just, it didn't feel right to me. And, uh, speaking of finding common ground, you know, I saw somewhere that a player at one point criticized you to the press after a match and you supposedly called him afterwards and challenged him on it. You know, so many people are afraid of productive conflict. I mean, it was, is that something that you find easy to do or did you do that? Is that a true story? It was, it was, uh, it was actually someone I'm, I'm friendly with now. Um, he's uh, Roger's coach, Ivan Lubacic. And uh, you know, listen, I, I'm not going to pretend like I wasn't, I, I wasn't going to run, rub people the wrong way with, with the way I went about my business on court and, um, at the U.S. Open, I was going to use the crowd to my advantage. Uh, there, there was no doubt about that. And, uh, you know, he went in and, and, and said some things that I, I thought were, uh, were an assumption. Um, you know, maybe would have been better served to have that conversation uh, behind closed doors first. Um, you know, and it's certainly his prerogative. But um, I just kind of wanted to make it known that it wasn't appreciated. I wasn't going to respond in kind, but that didn't mean that I wasn't pretty pissed about it. Um, you know, so... <laughs> And we, we, I think it's easier to kind of, you know, maybe have that conversation. Eventually the dust settles and maybe there's a level of respect for having had that conversation. And then, uh, you know, we were fine. Um, you know, we were, we were friendly later on. So I don't know if it was because of that, but, uh, you know, I, I certainly felt like I would like to hear it directly from him. And, you know, you know, and, and a lot of times what's portrayed to me, you know, they, they you know, they, they wanted that conflict. So I just wanted to make sure I was, uh, fully understanding of of what was said and what was meant. Well, a lot of people avoid that kind of conflict in in trying to, you know, get to, get to a level playing field again. So that's not easy to do. And you know, Andy, you 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 have a huge social following. In fact, we actually exchanged some direct messages over Twitter. That's how we started to mm-hmm. get to know each other. And I understand that you actually applied for a job over Twitter during COVID. <laughs> uh, is, is, tell us about it. Well, you know, early early days of COVID, I, I'm watching uh, I'm watching Tennis Channel, and I, I don't do um, any any sort of commentary, or I didn't, um, because I I, I kind of promised myself that I, I didn't want anything to completely control my geography again. So, you know, uh, going and commentating Wimbledon isn't an option if you're not willing to travel for two weeks at a time during the summer. So, uh, that's kind of where it had always been. But um, there there was certainly an opportunity when I was you know watching reruns on Tennis Channel, and they were doing you know, top 50 lists and top 100 lists and 
I was like, I, I could, I could do this. So I kind of just threw it out there and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of working on a, on a, on a very casual basis, um, for both sides. And it's been fun. Um, you know, there were, there was so much negative that, that came from, uh, from the last year and a half, but one of the positives was, uh, kind of, uh, reigniting a love affair with, uh, with tennis and being able to kind of mix it up and talk about it. And, you know, what you're seeing behind me is the exact same setup I have on tennis channel. So I get to do it from my office. So it's kind of a, a perfect scenario that came from, you know, kind of shooting a random shot on uh, on a social medium. <laughs> well, nothing ventured, nothing gained, yeah. right? You know, you know. I understand. It, it shift into a little more serious note here that you you actually saved a lot of people or some people in a in a in a hotel fire. Uh, tell us about it and what did that brush with death teach you? Um, yeah, yeah. I, it's it's weird to talk about. You don't want to. You know, it's 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 not something to to celebrate. Um, there were, uh, we were in, it was in Rome in 2004. Um, I had gotten there the night before and I, I woke up, I think it was like four or five in the morning and, uh, there was a lot of smoke and, and haze and I could smell it before I saw it. And so I, I wasn't sure what it was. I'm like, is there something electrical going on? Is there some sort of, you don't, you, you don't go to like, your mind doesn't go instantly to like the hotels on fire. Um, so I opened the front door uh, to kind of, I was going to walk to the lobby or just get out or just kind of see what the deal was. And just a plume of black smoke came in. I said, that's concerning. Um, and so I closed the door, put like a wet towel underneath it just so it wouldn't come in. And then I walked out on the, I had a patio and where I was staying, uh, I was on the sixth floor, the seventh floor, uh, was a half floor. So the fire truck ladders couldn't get to the seventh floor, uh, without kind of overshooting. So the people on the seventh floor were basically stuck. So we basically just Jimmy rigged an operation with couches and different things where they could jump from the roof on the seventh floor down to the sixth floor, uh, where I was, um, you know, there, there's some, luckily it was, uh, there, there was a group that spoke, uh, English. It was a tourist group from, from Minnesota. Um, but then we were able to kind of get them to where the, the fire ladder could reach. Um, unfortunately, uh, people died, um, from, from that floor. And so it was a, it was a pretty traumatic experience. I went back to get my stuff later that day and it's all just covered under about an inch of soot. Um, mm. And so, uh, it was, it was, it was pretty intense. It was, uh, it was, it was very unfortunate. Um, it, it but it, it's it, in a strange way, it's, we, we, we come from these worlds where we have a lot of acquaintances and you don't know how deep those go. And, uh, tennis is, 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 you, you think it's like that. And then something like that happens. And by the time that I got down, I was, I think I was the last one down out of the hotel. Um, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it, but all of the players who were there knew that I wasn't down yet and all this stuff. And so it's just, you become a family very quick, even players you've never talked to before. You, again, you share that common ground. Um, and, and, and I, while everyone was, was certainly devastated, it was, uh, it was, um, a, a humbling moment to see the, the amount of, uh, care that, that people had. I can only imagine, you know, Andy, you know, at, at the Rome masters on a critical match point, the linesman called your opponents serve out, but you knew it was in, and you showed the umpire the clay mark that that had him reverse the call, and you end up losing the match, as I understand it. Uh, why'd you do that? What is it, what in it? What's in you that made you do that? A lot of people would just say, "Hey, they missed it. That's the way it goes. That's sport." Yeah, I uh, this one gets celebrated more than it should too. Um, it it, uh, it was it was the wrong mark. I, I think the umpire would have figured it out eventually when they came to look at it. There was a pretty obvious mark. Um, I, I truthfully, I thought I was still going to win. 
<laughs> there we go. <laughs> but I, that might, that's the real answer. But, but I, uh, I, I didn't. Um, and so, you know, it would have been a, it would have been a, a, something that no one ever talked about again, had I actually won the match. I think that, <laughs> I think that fact that I, I think the fact that I choked like a dog and lost an hour later, probably, uh, added more to that story. <laughs> well, Andy, this has been so much fun for me. And, and I want to have some more with the lightning round of Q and a. Okay. All right. What three words best describe you? Uh, geez. Um, uh, kind, I think fair and uh, impatient what's something about you that few people would know um that i'm probably uh, a lot nicer away from the court and the, the, the way they know me I, I don't i don't really act the same away from the court that i do on the court <laughs> your biggest pet peeve uh people who are kind of unaware right if, if if four people are trying to get like through a door or something and someone's standing in the door having a conversation with a friend i just think like the inconsiderate nature of stuff like that drives me insane. Like it just, the, the, the kind of being unaware or, you know, leaving your car somewhere, blocking someone and stuff like that drives me absolutely nuts. <laughs> Do you have any hidden talents? I have zero talents. <laughs> <laughs> All right. uh, your, your favorite song of your pal, John Legend. Oh gosh. Uh, let's see. Um, you know, all of me is obviously the all of me. I, I I know it's his most famous one. I like it just because it's about Chrissy and we know her and it it is it was it's my favorite one for him because it you know he was already an award uh, Grammy award winning on it, but it kind of launched them into into a different stratosphere. So I think for it's probably not uh, my favorite song like personally, but it's my favorite song overall just because uh, you know it it it'll be the one that that's played at a wedding thirty years from now. Favorite sport besides tennis and your biggest accomplishment in it? Oh, gosh. Uh, I, I love golf. Um, we, 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 we know that. I, I think we have a lot of common friends uh, in the golf world, but I don't have many accomplishments in it. <laughs> I think I've, I've, I've played the... Uh, I've played the, the Pebble Beach Pro Am three times. I haven't made a cut. I'm not sure I've won a member guest ever, so it's, I'm, still, I'm still searching. <laughs> All right, the leader you admire most. Oh, gosh, that's a huge question, isn't it? Um, anyone who's who's done something that they thought was right, but for that, that wasn't easy to do. So I think of whether or not you, uh, you know, agree with why these people did things, but the fact that they were able to kind of give up something for themselves to do it. So you look like at a, at a, at a Nelson Mandela, you look at at a, at a Muhammad Ali, you look at people that did the hard thing because they thought it was right at, at a certain level of self-sacrifice, right? If, if you ha make a stand and you have everything to gain from that stand, it's great. When you have everything to lose from that stand, I think it's uh, probably even more impressive. You know, based on what you're doing today and what you've observed, you know, what three bits of advice would you give to aspiring leaders? Uh, communicate. Uh, I have a friend of mine who, in his uh, company notes, he always writes, sit on the floor. If, if all the chairs are taken, sit on the floor and have a smile. Um, and I, I always I always think that one. And then uh, we already covered it, but uh, don't be scared to ask questions. That's that's Those are probably the three biggest things. I love to sit on the yeah. floor. That is a great way. You know, that's one of the reasons why I love doing these podcasts is picking up little tidbits like yeah. that. That's fantastic. You know, last but not least, Tell us how you balance all you have going on with your wife, Brooklyn, your two kids. You, you got a lot of things, you know, a lot of different things you're investing in, starting new brands, et cetera. 
How do you balance it all? Um, what's your what's your guidepost? Uh, organizing as far as schedule helps. Um, you know, using the calendar you, to your advantage. Uh, you know, I, I know if I'm in a certain city and I can get two days of work done, I, I would much rather stack those days um, full. Uh, every Monday, I, I clear out my inbox. Uh, that's 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 a big one that keeps you from kind of procrastinating. You get into a, a little bit of uh, of a routine and, and be available. Um, uh, call people back when they call. Be accountable. Um, but do it on your time. You know, I, after 7.30 at night, if you need to talk to me that badly, that's when I can talk because my kids are down. So kind of having, uh, having boundaries, but uh, still in, in the realm of availability, I think is important. Is there any question that I haven't asked you that you wish I would ask? <laughs> oh, that's, I, don't, I don't know. That's, that's, that, that's your job. I, I feel uh, the, the, the back of my knees are sweating with some of them. So I don't think well, so. <laughs> you're, you're a podcaster yourself. So uh, I thought maybe I might've missed one. No, I think you were very thorough and well-researched. <laughs> no, it was obviously a lot of fun. And Andy, I want to thank you so much for, for taking the time. Uh, to have this conversation. And it's been great to get to know you. And I look forward to teeing it up with you. I, I, I like to play people who say they never win. You know, <laughs> I, I'm not sure I believe I, it, but, you know, it'd be nice. to. I'd like to win sometime myself. Well, I, I, I'm your guy. I'm your guy then. No problem. <laughs> All right. Great. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. I love what you're doing. I'm a listener. And uh, this is an important conversation about leading. I appreciate you. That was so much fun for me because I'm such a big Andy Roddick fan on the court and off. And I'm a bigger fan after this conversation. I'm so impressed with his honesty and his hard work and how he has been so fearless about his retirement to jump into the world of business. In your journey as a leader, you're going to find yourself in unfamiliar territory too. You're going to feel uncomfortable or uneducated or just outside your field of expertise. In those moments, we can't be afraid to ask questions, even if we think it'll make us look dumb. So let me coach you a bit and help you apply this insight from Andy into your life as a leader. This week, as part of your weekly personal development plan, I want you to look for an opportunity to ask questions you don't know the answer to. Put yourself in an unfamiliar situation. It might be an area of your business you've always been a little bit intimidated by or a new area you could expand into, but you don't know enough about it yet. Or heck, something completely different that's always intrigued you, even though you know jack squat about it. Whatever it is, you've got my permission to go out and ask a bunch of questions about it. Of course, like Andy, you've also got to prepare so that you ask the right questions. And you've also got to respect the time and relationship of the people you ask but go out there and fearlessly ask questions you don't know the answer to. You're gonna find a whole lot of cool opportunities waiting for you when you do. So do you wanna know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders aren't afraid to ask questions. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.